Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament passage of Psalm. Psalm uh, chapter number 12. We began there this morning. We want to continue with the same thought dealing with the preservation of Scripture, but looking at it just a little bit differently. If you don't mind, we want to start there tonight. Psalm 12. Psalm 12. We took some time this morning to examine the biblical doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. That we understand that just as a supernatural doctrine of inspiration, meaning we believe that God breathed the Scriptures, God gave us the Scriptures, we believe that preservation is just as a supernatural doctrine. Meaning that God's the one who provided His Word for us and he preserved his word for us. Well, it's one thing to be able to state that, saying we believe from the Bible that God promised to preserve his word, but is there any evidence to back that up? Is there any way to verify? Is there any way to prove to a scoffer, to encourage a doubter that God preserved his word? Is there any other evidence to present? And the answer is absolutely yes. And I would like to take some time to help with this idea of evidence. If you don't mind, first of all, let's just look at Psalm 12 and see the promise that God had made as we start off. Psalm 12, and again, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 12, 6 and 7, the Word of God says this. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt preserve them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And once again, we're going to hit the same theme that we hit this morning about the preservation of Scripture, but we want to add to it, dealing with the idea of historical evidence of the preservation of Scripture. Historical evidence evidence of preservation of Scripture. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for you being a wonderful God, a God who's worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be served. And I'm asking that you would give grace and mercy as we open this up. Lord, for my own mind's sake, I'm asking that you would set aside any distraction, set aside anything that, that needs to be set aside now for the purpose that I could concentrate on your pure word, concentrate on the message and communicating this. I know that I am not the best vessel but I am a willing vessel. So the best I know how I set myself aside and ask that you fill me with your precious spirit, that you guide and direct as you see fit, that you could help encourage these saints, that you could help the doubter, that you could uh, <laughs> encourage the scoffer. And Lord, that they could have the evidence, the encouragement that your word not only is true, not only is it preserved, but there is evidence to back this up that you have preserved your word in history. Lord, thank you again for whom you are. And in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Now, as we start off, the first thing I want to present to you is that it all has to begin with God. Is that first of all, we have God's promise to preserve His Word. Before we go anywhere else, before we talk about anything else, we have to understand that God promised to preserve His Word. Now, this morning, we took time to look at quite a few texts that encourage and um, say the same thing, that God promised to preserve His Word, whether it was something like God uh, promised that His Word is settled to heaven, that His Word shall never fail, that no jot nor tittle shall pass until all these things are fulfilled. That God has made several promises, but here is one of the key promises that is very clearly stated. Again, verse number 6, the words of the Lord, we understood as we examined this morning that this is the main topic, this is the subject that's being brought up. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And remember, that is speaking about God's inspiration, that God, when he gave his words, they were pure to start off with. Added to it, verse number 7, thou shall keep them. We know that that thou is the person of a direct address, that it's, O Lord, that God shall keep them. What's that them? Well, the subject that's being brought here is the word of the Lord, that God shall keep the word of the Lord. God shall preserve the word of the Lord, the words of the Lord, from this generation forever. God made a clear, distinct promise to preserve his word. And you can't get better than that. God promised to preserve his word. We can trust God's word. Now, we're not presenting evidence to... um because that's not enough, but we are trying to encourage people to let him know that God is uh, able to keep his word. If you don't mind, let's hit a couple of historical evidences. First of all, let's examine this idea of the preservation of the Old Testament. How was the Old Testament preserved? How did we get this? Well, if you don't mind, notice with me in the book of Deuteronomy, and I want to show a each of these, I want to show a text and kind of bounce off those texts to show the historicalness. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17 and verse number 8, starting at verse number 18. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18, the word of God says this. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest and the Levites. And it shall be with him that he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he might turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the ends that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Now, in this text, we could see that the priest here inside of the law were commanded to go ahead and keep copies of the law. In addition, something spectacular, imagine this. That the brand new king comes on the kingdom and one of his first tasks was that he had to handwrite a copy of the word of God for himself. Do you think that would do any leadership to do some good if they would actually have to handwrite the word of God for themselves and read it all the days of their life? Well, that was the commandment that every king was to have. That's the kingly challenge is that the kings were challenged to write out the word of God for themselves. 
and then have their own copy of the word of God to read from. Now, <laughs> we know that the kings were making their own copies, but there was a certain sect of Jewish people, scribes, called the Masoretic Jews, and that they had specific rules of copying the word of God. They believed wholeheartedly that this was God's word, and they believed because it was the words of God and not the words of man, that they had the responsibility to make sure that the word of God was copied correctly. Now, I've passed out a handout, if you don't mind to look at it. These are the Jewish and Masoretic rules for copying the scriptures. And I'm giving this to you to give you some encouragement, confidence from history, how important, how carefully they saw the carrying on, the copying of the scriptures to make sure that there was no mistakes. If you don't mind, just look at some of these. It talks about that it has to be written on the skins of clean animals. Remember the Jewish people had a list of clean animals and unclean animals. So even the paper, uh, paper the parchment that they used had to be clean. It had to be prepared for the synagogue by a Jew only. Meaning that the Jewish people, they were supposed to be serious about it. They weren't supposed to pass it off to someone else to outsource it. They were responsible of keeping their scriptures. They must be fastened together with strings from clean animals. They must contain an exact number of columns which must be equal throughout the manuscript. Meaning that you, you had to line up the columns specifically and it had to be the same throughout the whole time. Again, it's just going through these specific rules. The length of them, the breadth of them. The whole copy must be first lined and the three words... Um, if three words were written without a line, it must be considered youth worthless, meaning you couldn't just start copying wherever you wanted to, that they had actual rules and things to keep things decently in order. There had to be an ink that was specially used. The original must be used to copy, must be authentic and not deviate it from the copyist. And the scribe must say each word aloud as he wrote it. What does that mean? Well, next, notice the next one. No word or letter could be ever written from memory. The scribe must first look at the original before writing his copy. So the scribe, he was required not to write it from memory. That he had to write down, if you would look, look at um, Deuteronomy 17, 18. And, and, it, it, shall, shall, be, be, when he, he. And so they had to make sure they looked at every word. So that way you could not make a mistake. You couldn't you know, we all have written things down and then forgot what we were writing and then mid-sentence and then messed things up because we jumbled things up. They were not allowed to do that. They had to see what they were reading and write it down to try to keep from making mistakes. Notice, if you don't mind, it talks about the spacing of each things. It talked about... Um, each one of these. Now, before copying, the scribe must wash his whole body. Why? This was a ceremonial cleansing to let him know, I am about to, ready to write down the words of God. This is special. It's not just everyday event. This is a special thing. I need to make sure my mind is thinking, this is special. Well, again, that's significant. It wasn't something, well, I'm bored. I have nothing else to do. Let me go ahead and write. No, he had to ceremonially wash himself to make sure that he had the mindset, I am doing this for God. Notice he goes on. While copying, the scribe must only write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink. So, hey, I don't want to run out of ink. Remember, they didn't have nice ink pens. They had to fill up the ink with a quill. That before they wrote down the name of God, they could not risk running out of ink in the middle of writing God's name. 
So fill up the ink so that way you don't run out. We don't want to mess up God's name. Notice, each time the scribe came across the Hebrew word for God, he had to wipe his pen clean. Then when he came across the name of God, Jehovah, the personal name of God, he had to wash his whole body before he wrote it. Why? Because this was to say, I'm about ready to write down the name of God. And that this is the personal name of God. And I need to treat this special. I don't need to mess anything up. I need to realize... I am not taking God's name in vain. I'm writing down God's personal name and what an important name this is. It talks about that should a king address the scribe while writing that name, he shall take no notice of him. So if a king came in and the guy was in the middle of writing down God's personal name, he had to finish God's name first, then address the king. Because God's name is important. Again, it's trying to put the significance. This is a big deal. If a sheet of parchment had one mistake on it, the sheet was condemned. Can you imagine that? So, oops, I made a mistake. How many of you could type and make no mistakes? This is a big deal. How many of you can handwrite notes from a teacher and make no mistakes? You had to make zero mistakes. If there was one mistake, this is not good enough. Well, that's pretty significant, isn't it? You had to be serious about your job not to make a mistake. If there were three mistakes found on any page, the whole manuscript was condemned. Each scroll had to be checked within 30 days of its writing or it was considered unholy. Meaning, you had to have someone check your work when you were done to make sure that you were completed it correctly. And if you said, nope, nope, I'm going to stall. Well, if nobody checked your work in 30 days, there had to be something wrong with it. Doesn't count. Get rid of it. Then each word and every letter was counted. If a letter or a word was omitted, the manuscript was condemned. You made a mistake. So they went through and they counted how many A's and then they checked it. Well, did I have 13 A's? Yep, I did. Oh, there was 400 B's. All right. Did I have every 400? They counted each letter in the book and made sure every letter was there. Now that's going to the extremes to make sure that we had exactly what we were supposed to have. No mistake right? This was the Jewish and Hebrew way, the, how the Old Testament was preserved. Well, how about this? How did we have the New Testament preserved? So we talked about the links that the Old Testament went through. What about the New Testament? Well, notice with me in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. The book of 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapter number 2. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, and notice if you don't mind, notice this in verse number 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity. But as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. So here they're saying... The New Testament Christians, they loved God's word. And because they loved God's word, they wanted to pay attention that when they were copying God's word, that they didn't want to make any mistakes. They had an honest desire to keep God's word correctly. Well, we're thankful for that. People who love God's word are going to be careful with God's word. Notice if you don't mind in verse uh, chapter 
4 verse 2, 2 Corinthians 4 2. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, God had a... <laughs> The task for preserving the New Testament fell to the New Testament church. These two passages show the sincerity, the honesty, the earnestness of the New Testament Christians in handling the word of God. They had a sincere desire to keep God's word from being corrupted. The saints wanted to make sure that the word of God was handled faithfully, was handled honestly, was handled in a way that would pass on and that people could enjoy the word of God for themselves. And so we could see that preservation of the New Testament fell to the church, not to lost people, not to people who are going to corrupt it, but people who loved God's word and wanted to make sure God's word was handled correctly. Now, let's move on. We also have the evidence, the historical evidence of multiple copies, a multiple copies. Notice with me in 2 Peter chapter number 3, 2 Peter chapter number 3. In the book of 2 Peter, chapter number 3, notice with me, if you don't mind, starting at verse 15. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 15. And the account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom hath given unto him, hath written unto you, and also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of the things in which are some things hard to be understood that they which are unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures even to their own destruction. Now God had his word copied over and over and over. So we understand that we're able to take many manuscripts and compare them to make sure they had accuracy. True, there could be some penmanship errors or language in a, that we would call in a computer a typo. But when you compare the manuscripts together, it's very easy to see what was intended to be said. Does that make sense? I had a pastor friend of mine, he had a church where he had 100 members, and he said, let's try this, okay? What we're going to do is I'm going to read to you a Bible verse. Everyone, scribes, pens, and paper, I want you to write down this Bible verse. And so everyone wrote it down. Then he collected the pieces of paper, and he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to count how many, the most used letter, and I'm going to put that down. And we're going to see with all the hundred scribes that we had in here, if we had an accurate render with a hundred scribes. And we understand there were some people who were spelling challenged and some people who may have wrote the thing down. And of course they discounted, you know, the five-year-old kids writing, you know, ducks and whatever. But they compared it, and guess what happened? With a hundred scribes writing it down, with the most used letters, it had the exact way it was supposed to be written. He said, I was scared because I didn't know I was going to work out. But, you know, with multiple copies, it's very easy to compare and say, you know what? We clearly understood what is being written in case there happened to be a spelling error or a mistake. Does that make sense? We have that thing of multiple copies. Something else with the evidence Turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter number 4. Colossians chapter 4. <laughs> Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 16. Colossians 4 and verse 16. And when this epistle is read among you, 
Cause it that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that likewise you read the epistle from the Laodiceans. With this, we understand the familiarity of Scripture. In this passage, the people of Colossae were supposed to read it, and then they were supposed to pass it on to others so they could read it themselves. One of the things as a support of Scripture is the familiarity of Scripture for those who love the Bible. And those who love the Bible, it is very easy for them to spot the errors. Let me take a pause. Today's modern day FBI for, or uh, secret service, whichever one gets involved, when they start studying to identify um, counterfeit bills, they do not study counterfeit bills. They study the real thing and they know everything about the real thing, every marking, every hidden everything, how it feels, how it weighs. They study everything. And once they know the original, then it's very easy to spot the frauds. Well, the same thing's true with the scriptures. That the people get familiar with scriptures. And when they <laughs> find the scriptures, they know them. And it's very easy to spot any mistakes that may creep in. And guess what? People are very quick to point out mistakes. Now, when printing came about, the early printing presses, some of you may not know how it was done, but what they had to do in order to print the printing press is they had to take letters that were backwards. And they had to spell them backwards and upside down. So that way when you put the paper down and it went against the ink, it came out and was printed right side up. Now, if you can imagine how much trouble you have spelling things frontwards, taking each letter and putting each block in there and spelling it backwards and upside down and trying to make sure that everything was right, every once in a while, there might be a mistake that comes in. You can imagine that. And people are very quick to spot them. Now, <laughs> we've had fun at the expense of them that there were some Bibles that had mistakes in them and those Bibles were actually, the whole Bible was nicknamed for that mistake. For example, there was the Wife Beater's Bible in um, 1549. A note on 1 Peter chapter 3, ver or chapter 3 verse 2 says, And if she be not obedient, helpful to him, Endeavor to beat the fear of God into her head. Now that was a footnote, not in the scripture. But people spotted that and said, you know what? We shouldn't promote that. What in the world are you thinking? And so the whole Bible was now called the Wife Beater's Bible because of one little note. Here's something else. The Judas Bible, 1611, includes a misprint where Judas was repla accidentally replaced the name of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. So instead of promoting Jesus, it promoted Judas. Just one name change, and everybody knew it was supposed to be Jesus, but the whole thing, that's the Judas Bible. The whole thing was condemned because it had a mistake. People were familiar with it. They knew it was a mistake. And um, there was the Wicked Bible in 1631. In Exodus 20, 14, it says, Thou shall commit adultery. They forgot the not. Someone had put them in there. Oh, it's the Wicked Bible. They missed that one word not and everyone caught it. Because they're familiar with the scripture. Does that sort of make sense? People are very quick because they love the scriptures. If they find a mistake, they're quick to pounce on it. Um, the unrighteous Bible in 1653 renders 1 Corinthians 6, 9 as, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God? It was supposed to be, don't you know that the righteous shall inherit the kingdom of God? Or shall not 
inherit the kingdom of God. It made that one little mistake, but the whole thing was condemned. Of course, I'm not immune to that. In uh, 2016, we put out the chronological Bible. And because of a printing error or something, part of a verse was gone. And wouldn't you know, I got condemned and beat up and whatever because of a printing mistake. Something didn't transfer right. I had people that gave me one star review because I messed up the entire Bible. Because I messed, missed that out. People who know the scriptures will be very quick to point out there's a mistake in there. That's one of the confirmations of history that if there was something wrong in there, people would say, nope, stop. We know the scriptures that is wrong. Does that make sense? What about this? We have the evidence of students of ancient languages. The students of ancient languages. In Matthew 5.18, we're not going to turn there, but it speaks about the jot and the tittle. You remember what a jot is? It's the smallest, the yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then you had a tittle, which is the little marking that changes one letter from another. For example, a capital English P, it changes it to a capital R by just adding that leg to it. That's a tittle. Well, students of ancient languages, let me give you a hint, are not novices. For example, if I was to hand you one of my copies of the Hebrew Bible, and you would look at it and try to figure out what in the world is this. I have no clue. By the way, the Hebrew Bible, you read from right to left instead of left to right. That also means that you start at the back of the Bible and then you turn it front ways. That's enough to mess anybody up. But you start to take the Hebrew language and then you start studying ancient Hebrew language which has no vowels. It's all consonants. Then they added vowel points to it. That's enough to make your head spin. And you say, well, it's easy to make mistakes. Yes, but if you're someone who actually studies languages, it doesn't become so foreign and so hard if you study it. The people who were uh, studied the Bible, translated the Bible, were experts in their fields. They lived with the language and they studied it. The copying of the languages would be understood to be important that each letter was correctly handled. We talked about that before for the Hebrew people. Those people were not new people to Hebrew. They lived with Hebrew. They breathed Hebrew. They understood it. It was not complicated for them because they understood it. After all that God did <laughs> to promise that even the smallest letter was to be kept, he understood that there were scholars that would be there to be help study these things as well. Something else that we have is that Jesus attested to the purity of the Old Testament. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5. Jesus testified and said that these scriptures were correct. Matthew chapter 5. And notice with me in verse number 17. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets... I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle, shall in no wise pass from the law, but till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now let me pause here. Jesus... Use the Old Testament 
scriptures often in his earthly ministry. He referred to them all the time. And since he was the author of the Bible, if someone had messed up the Bible, don't you think the author would have called it out? You misquoted me. You messed it up. You know, he accused the scribes of many things. They tried to twist the scriptures. They tried to come up with their own ideas. They ignored part of the law. They would try to abuse the law. But at no time did he ever accuse them of messing up the scriptures themselves. Does that make sense? He would have called them out. Jesus said, the scriptures here is perfect. Let me quote from them. Let me teach from them. Now you read them and you apply them correctly. Does it make sense? Jesus gave the testimony. In addition, we have in history the checks and balances between Jews and Christians. Now, the Jewish scriptures, their Talmud, is the same as our Old Testament. So our Old Testament is their Bible. Now, this may be a revelation to you. It may be a shock. Jewish People and Christians have not always gotten along in history. <gasps> and they would love to hold something over the other. They would always look for ways to say that they're better than the others. So if the Christians had messed up the Old Testament scriptures, don't you think the Jewish people would have screamed a high heaven that the, Jewish, that the Christians messed things up? And don't you think the Christians, especially those who are not right with God, were looking for any opportunity that the Jewish people changed their scriptures, that the Christians would have yelled and screamed and hollered? Absolutely. But because of the checks and balances, we have that evidence. None of them ever accuse the other of tampering with the scriptures because they're the same. If you take the Jewish Old Testament, it's the same as our Old Testament. Does it make sense? They match together. And the Jewish people are separate from the Christians, but the scriptures remain the same. One of the evidences of this preservation, this checks and balances that was done. Now with this, how about this? We have the evidence of other historical books. We have the evidence of other historical books. We know that the Bible is not the oldest book, but it does hold the grandest story. Even today, we have copies of ancient books and literature that have come down through the ages. But of course, none of these have been under the attack like God's Word. So, how about this? Let's consider some of these historical works. There are about 6,000 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. You remember hearing about Homer's Iliad when you were in school? It's a Greek play. Uh, <laughs> we have um, 6,000 copies of Homer's Iliad, but nobody ever says, oh no, somebody didn't keep Homer's Iliad correctly. It, someone messed it up. You know, Homer's Iliad is written approximately during the time of, um, of David. And so nobody's saying, oh look, you messed this up. Some people violated it, they're twisted. No, they said, you know what? We have a preserved copy of Homer's Iliad. Man has done a good job keeping that. Now, is the Bible better than the Iliad? Yes. Do you think the people love the Bible more than the Iliad? Yes. So do you think the people who love the Bible would be very careful in keeping it? Well, if, people can, if man can keep an uninspired work, don't you think that God can keep his word? 
How about another one? We only have a few copies of Thalukides' History of the Peloponnesian War in existence. Yet everything we know about the Peloponnesian War comes from this source. Um, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. There are only eight manuscripts of Herodotus' histories, yet it is referred to by almost every ancient historian today. Only eight copies. Remember what I said about having 50,000 copies to, that we could refer to of the, of the Greek New Testament that we have proof and evidence for? They have eight well, from that eight, every historian makes a reference based off of eight documents. The Bible has better documentation, better history, better proof, more manuscripts. We could trust that God kept his word. <clears throat> What's more is that none of these copies that I made reference to are the originals. The earliest copy is only about 1,300 years removed from its source. So let's take Herodotus. Herodotus lived in the 400s BC. It's about the time of the completion of the Old Testament. His histories were recorded by observation, tales told to him by locals and other sources. He also experienced the first state of the Peloponnesian War. <coughs> uh, Herodotus used many details, including the number of horses, chariots, men, geography, plans of attack, and various minute details of his histories. All that is truly questioned about Herodotus' writings is the content, not the copying of it. So someone may say Herodotus was wrong, but nobody says somebody copied it wrong. Does that make sense? They accused him of fabricating and exaggerating, but nobody made, mis uh, made a mistake in the copying of it. Now that goes with Homer. Homer who lived about 850 AD, about the time of the divided kingdom. Of the 6,000 manuscripts around today, most of them agree together. So again, if man could keep uninspired history literature books, can't God preserve his word? Now why is this a big deal? Because today, people want to justify the, the use of different Bibles. And one of the reasons why they justify that is they say that man makes mistakes. And their idea is that some guy who was tasked, had the job of writing copies of the Bible, didn't get enough Starbucks coffee. And so he accidentally wrote an extra zero in the column. And so what happens is the guy who came after him wrote that extra zero. And the guy who came after him wrote that extra zero. Until today we have the mistakes in the Bible. And no one knows what was supposed to be corrected. Well, there's a couple problems with that, and a lot of that is solved by the evidences here. We had multiple copies. Someone would have caught that. We have people who love the Bible who someone would have caught that. If the Jewish people found that some guy made a mistake, he would have caught that. In addition, that when you write the Bible, and you see in the Bible, when you see the numbers, how many times you actually see numbers and not it spelt out? Right? Now, let's say the word 100 and the word 10. Well, all I do is add an extra zero. Is that how it works? No, it's a completely different word. Does that make sense? So it's not the idea that someone wrote an extra zero. He would have had to write a completely different word, which doesn't come because you had a lack of Starbucks coffee in the middle of the night. Someone would have caught these. See, what happens is that people get lazy. And what they do is they try to explain away different things in the Bible they don't like. 
And so they want to explain away that man cannot keep God's word. That man makes mistake. He lost something. Let me show you. Here's a mistake. It doesn't mean that God's word isn't inspired. It just means that what we have today, we just don't know exactly what's true or not. Well, that's horrible. That's causing doubt. What happens is that people don't believe that God can preserve his word. That is why we have so many different English languages, uh, English Bibles, over 800 English Bibles at current. I may be underestimating, but it's because people don't believe God can inspire his word. But if we do believe that God inspired his words and that God can preserve his words, then we can have confidence that we can have God's word in our hand. And it's not just because God said so, that, though that is enough. We also have other historical evidence to back up what we say is true. That we're not just making it up and we're not just some dumb people out in the woods that don't know any better and that just need education. But in fact, history is on our side to show that we can have confidence in the Bible we have. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three oh eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three oh eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.